Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We live at a time when the strength of our fundamental governing institutions are being tested. Not because the institutions that have served us well have dramatically changed, or even because of external changes in technology and information. But what seems to be different is the leadership or lack of it of these institutions and the lack of accountability of their leaders. In the private sector, when corporations get into trouble, they replace the CEO. When sports teams repeatedly have a losing season, invariably they replace the coach. If sales are down, managers are replaced, all in real time. In politics, rhythms are determined by democracy, which means we should work even harder to get the leadership right the first time. But look where we are. We too often look at leadership today as about celebrity or attention. In a time when we've elected a reality show star as president, when celebrity politics seems the lifeblood of the American political class, it's hard to imagine a world-class politician or global leader emerging today. It makes you wonder, is there something in our culture that has become antithetical to leadership? Is there too much talk about grassroots leadership and not enough about the charismatic leadership that makes a difference? We see Ukraine President Zelensky in wartime, and we see that leadership qualities are indeed possible. So why the seeming dearth of inspired political leadership today? We're going to talk about this with my guest, David Gergen, who himself has devoted more than half his life to public service. He has seen leadership up close and personal. He served in the White House as an advisor to four presidents of both political parties including Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. He recounted those experiences in his memoir, Eyewitness to Power, and later served as the editor of U.S. News and World Report. Most recently, he has served as a professor of public service and the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. And for more than two decades, he's been a senior political analyst for CNN. His newest work is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. It is my pleasure to welcome David Gergen here to the program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you. It sounds like um, I don't think I need to say anything. You've just captured so well where we are. <laughs> and we can start right off with that, and you can just, you know, you can mail it in from here on. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> one of the, the, the key things one thinks about whenever the subject of leadership comes up, and it, it, it is a bit of a cliche, but somehow relevant to this, whether leaders are born or whether they could be made, certainly somebody can learn the skills of leadership, but that ability to truly lead and inspire, is that something people are born with, or can that be instilled as well, do you think? Well, I, th I think that there are some elements of leadership that, are, that do come at birth in your DNA. A, a person like Dwight Eisenhower, for example, he found out in his youth, just as Abraham Lincoln did, <clears throat> that when the young young people gathered around and you know would follow their their directions but if you want to become a truly great leader i think i don't think that's in your dna i think you really have to learn that through experience in the arena you have to go through a school of hard knocks um you have to know who you are and be able to to um, master your own temptations your own um uh, you know uh, uh, your own sense of life and who you are in the world um that that is something that's very much determined by how you sort of conduct yourself. And when you come up in crucible moments in particular, what we know is that crucibles uh, such as Franklin Roosevelt, who was a dandy most, most of his early life, uh, ran for vice president at 39, was a rising star, but still was seen as too lightweight to be president. But then he was struck down by polio. 
And for seven years, he tried to learn how to walk, and he never could. He had to fake it uh, in all of his public appearances, uh, which he does successfully. <clears throat> but he came through that crucible experience strengthened. Inner, he had inner strength that came from fighting off and trying to you know, get back in the game again. Uh, and that's what often happens, that, um, that people come through really hard times, uh, and, but they come out with stronger moral purpose. And that makes them better leaders. So uh, I, I think it's I think leaders in, are self-made in many ways, um, and it much depends on them. It's not people can't teach you that. They can, you you can't learn all you need to know about leadership by you know taking a course on it. There no, you can't learn it by just sort of having people uh, give you lectures. It's you've really got to go out and experience it yourself, and then become reflective. You know, wind in, interweave what you learn from books and lectures and so forth, but have the experiences in the, in the arena. Some of it, though, does seem like it's, it's instinctual. You know, you, you see somebody like Zelensky, for example, and, and Reagan. I mean, those two are, are sort of bookends of a particular kind of leadership that have this sense of, of just being in touch with the public. I could, to- I could totally agree. They, uh, they were both engaged. They came out, both came out of the entertainment world. You know, and that's where Zelensky made his name. That's where Reagan first made his name. Um, and it was a good thing that Reagan was only a Class B actor because he then had to, to to make a living. He had to hit the road and speak all over the country for a number of years for General Electric. Uh, and he developed he developed his voice as as he did that. He was out speaking to, to as I say to audiences everywhere. He got a lot of feedback. He kept on changing. So by the time you know when he was ready to go into the spotlight. He had a he had he was deeply engaged with the with the ideas of his time and with the people of his time, so that Reagan could speak naturally to them about the lives they were leading. That was true. That was true, as you say, of of, of Lincoln. It was true of FDR. You know, frankly, uh, Barack Obama had a lot of that in him. Uh, he seen and and he got off to. A, you know, I think he's going to be remember, remembered as a as a one of our favorite, if, but if I doubt he'll be remembered as one of our best, but he will be remembered as one of our favorites. There's also the sense you talk about to, to be a leader, to be an effective leader, you have to sort of be able to lead yourself. And yet I, I think about that in the context of, of Clinton, who you obviously have worked for and know well, who was, was so undisciplined in so many ways and yet was effective as a leader. Clinton had done one thing as he was, as he was growing up and, you know, he was he was indiscreet in a lot of different ways. He was he was he was out there. He was extremely charismatic figure, um, and people, men as well as women were really taken by him. Um, but you know, one of the things Jeff that he had learned to do so well was he he'd learned to walk on the edge, right on the edge of the envelope, a lot, because if he fell off, as he sometimes did, he could usually took talk his way back on. He he you know he was very very good at spinning out a yarn. Uh, but when he got on the Monica stuff, it just it fell apart on him, uh, and he was and he paid a price for it. I think he's paid too heavy a price, frankly, in people's memories. I think he was a better president than he some some people will give him credit for. Um, but he was he was very good at that too, and and some people know how to dance their way through things. They're just better at it. One of the things I'm out here in California, and one of the things certainly we see in in Silicon Valley, for example, with startups, is many people that are great at starting a company, at being charismatic leaders and building a company, are terrible when it comes to running those companies. In in many ways, Washington feels the same way in that many people that are good at, at, at projecting charismatic leadership, at getting themselves elected, are not necessarily the best at governing. 
I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the there's there are so many people who are, you know, have the qualities to be in the Senate, for example. And I think one of the conventional wisdom in, in Washington today is that Joe Biden, for all his many strengths, and he's a man of great empathy, he's a man of honesty. I, you know, I think you know, if you judge him on his human qualities, I think he ranks very high. But that he has surrounded himself with people uh, who all come from basically the same place, and that is they worked on Senate staffs. They work for senators. And when, working for a senator is very different from working for a president. A president is an executive. A president is sort of is someone gives orders and gets things done, is expected to get big things done. A senator is expected to get along, to go along, get along, uh, and be part of some larger thing. And so you're not in an executive position. And I think the staff, uh, it's a shortcoming on the staff that he, that Biden has that they're used to sort of managing things but not getting big things done. One of the other qualities that you talk about that's important to leadership, and, and, and I really want to explore this because I think it's so important, is this importance of having a sense of humor, something that feels like we've lost so much of today. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, you know, Lincoln fame made humor in, in the presidency a really important part of important asset for him. But he made it clear the reason he wanted to laugh so much was because if he didn't laugh, he would have to cry at what he was seeing. And you, there's, you, you have to take sort of an ironic view of, of life. And um, our best presidents, the ones that are most memorable, are ones that, who can laugh at themselves. They can laugh at the world. They can sort of find, you know, ironic twists in it. And, you know, I'll just uh, I'll give you a, a quick story. Jack Kennedy is president. Pierre Salinger, whom I got to know pretty well along the way, was it was his press secretary. One morning, eleven o'clock, Pierre Pierre's phone rings. He picks it up. It's the president and uh, Kennedy says, "Pierre, come in here. I need to talk to you." He walks in. Pierre, I know you love a good cigar just as much as I do. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Well, Pierre, I've got a I've got a request to make. What's that, Mr. President? Pierre, I need you to get me some of Havana's finest cigars. Mr. President, that's going to be hard to do. How many do you need, and how soon? Uh, I need a thousand, and I need them by eleven o'clock tomorrow morning, Mr. President. That's going to be almost impossible, Pierre. You're a good man. See you later. Eleven o'clock next day, phone rings. Pierre, come in here. Walks in. Pierre, do you get those cigars? Yes, sir, Mr. President. I got all a thousand Havana's finest. I knew you're a good man, Pierre. See you later. Noon sharp. The President of the United States goes on television to declare a trade embargo against Cuba. <laughs> yeah, that's a man with a sense of humor. <laughs> he had a real sense of irony. We used to play in the Reagan days. We used to play a lot of, play a lot of pranks. There were there. <laughs> you always said you never know which 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 way they're coming. But Mike Beaver and I enjoyed playing pranks on Jim Baker. He was chief of staff, and uh, Baker always laughed. He had a good sense of humor. To what extent are are great leaders made? And you touched on this in talking about the Crucible earlier. Great leaders really made by circumstance. Well, it it certainly the context certainly makes a difference. You take, uh, you know, my, my friend Joe Nye makes the argument, he was former dean of the county school, um, makes the argument that in 1939, Winston Churchill was washed up. People thought they'd never hear from him again. He was seen as impulsive, he a little bit of a wild man. You know, he had, he was stuck on how you know, awful the Nazis were. He, he was going to get us into, get, get the uh, British into war. And he said, we got an arm. And they said, no. So he was he was ignored and, and seemed to be banished for life. But then along comes Hitler marching across Europe. And suddenly the context changes 
and the British people need somebody who is as strong and as tough as Churchill, and he gets hauled in, out, you know, out of out of the um, wilderness, uh, and he comes in and he's you know one of the best leaders in history. Um, and but he needed that context to do that. Teddy Roosevelt often regretted that he didn't li- that he was not president during the Civil War because he knew if he had been president, he would have been one of our most memorable presidents. Uh, and, you know, he, he would be up there on Mount Rushmore two or three times. Um, but, you know, Teddy was sort of like, I, I didn't, you know, I lived in a different time. I, he sort of had to invent his own excitement, which he did quite well. But, Jeff, let me go back to something you said earlier, if I might, because I think it's so important. And that is, you, you said, look, a baseball team's got a, a losing season. The manager, you know, has to go. You know, if you see that in, in, in films, you have a lot of busts in films. You got to go. You got you get displaced. And we don't do that in our politics. And you're right. We should be doing more of that because what we've been facing now over recent years is a series of failures uh, in in our leadership. We're not, and so we're we're now getting crisis after crisis cascading down upon us, and we're not solving the problem. Look, we look look at how far we've already wandered away from guns. With with um, with the whole question of Texas and what's going on in Buffalo and so forth, you know, just a few weeks ago, we were we were all set to pass major legislation. Now this thing is slipping away from us, and it's going to be yet another leadership failure. I think I personally think that it's time for the torch to pass to a new generation. That the people who are my generation, I'm sort of a uh, early, a very early baby boomer. I don't think we have lived up to the promise that we had in the 60s and 70s. I think we've I think we've been we've uh, been there and governed during a time of disappointments, and and for which I think the baby boomers deserve. Uh, there are a lot of good baby boomers, which are interesting people, but I think they deserve some of. I think it's time for basically a new generation to come to the fore, a new generation that has fresh vision, that's not as bogged down by the by the poisonous arguments we have of today. They can, they can present a new vision of what America is, a renewed vision of what America is, bring fresh vigor to it, you know, and bring fresh charisma to it and, and get us out of this hole. We're, the next five, six, seven years are going to be very, very rough years. They could be worse than what we've already been through. But I do think that over the horizon, there's some real possibilities. There's fresh hope there in that new generation that I could, I'd be happy to talk about. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm a short-term pessimist about America, but a long-term optimist. I, th- I think, uh, yeah, I do think in the long term we'll be much better off than we are today. I want to talk about that new generation, and, and you see and talk to a lot of these young people there at the Kennedy School. There is the sense in talking to a lot of of younger people, about, one their cynicism about politics, but the second part of that is the cynicism about leadership. This sense that somehow the great man theory of history or that charismatic leadership is not important. They've been indoctrinated, it seems, in this idea that all we need is grassroots activism and that leaders, strong leaders, don't matter. And I think that's part of the problem that we're facing as as we look to this younger generation for leadership. Well, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting and uh, important uh, thought. Uh, I, I, I do think that in the new generation there are some people who are not going to be good leaders. They they have um, you know they, they're self-important. They're arrogant. They're elitist. They don't have the drive, the personal drive that it takes to be a great leader. But I must say that I do think that the that there are elements now of what's happening, the way leadership is being reshaped in the country, that it's true that the great a great man, we should not depend on men on white horses to, to rescue us. 
what we've discovered is we do need great men, but we also need a strong civic culture. We need that we need a uh, an environment that that a context in which leaders can lead. We need we need people who are going to instead of tearing down new leaders, we we help to build them up. And I think a lot of that leadership is going to come from the ground up. We're going to have two simultaneous things going on if we're lucky. And that is we have very, very good people at the top. We find the Zelenskys of the world. But that we, the Zelensky can only uh, perform well if there's a lot of support for him at the grassroots level. And he's done that extremely well. He's built up that grassroots. You know, he talks to his people every night by, um, by TV. He's been a very engaging figure. Uh, he knows how to talk because of his background as an entertainer. He knows how to engage. But you look at Occupy Wall Street and now the Black Lives Matter in particular, I believe very strongly in that you've also got to have a strong up from the grassroots um, uh, basis. And I and I think, you know, we wouldn't be having the, the possibilities we have today were it not for young people taking to the streets. Um, and, you know, we've had the largest demonstrations in our history now on, on, on civil rights, on guns, on LBGT rights, uh, on, you know, on so many different issues now. You see great numbers of women's, you know, with the future women on abortion. You're going to see more about that in, in the months ahead. Um, and I think that bubbling up of, of grassroots fervor will make it possible for new people to govern more effectively. What we're going through now is, a, I think, is a, we're going through the tail end of an old administration, an old generation, and we're about to embark on a new generation. If they can govern successfully, a new generation will pull ourselves out of this mess. It does seem, though, that, that some of these grassroots efforts, whether it's Occupy, whether it's the Tea Party, whether it's Black Lives Matter, that, that part of the reason that these groups have, have in some ways faded is because they have lacked that singular charismatic leadership. Well, Donald Trump began to come close to that, didn't he, for a while. Uh, you know, I, I think that star has faded a lot here in the recent months. But uh, but uh, there was there was that moment when it appeared that Donald Trump was going to be sort of a smart George Wallace. Um, and yeah, I, I think now people see that that's, that's not the response. That's not the answer. We ought to, we ought to be looking elsewhere. Um, but there was clearly... There was a desire on the part of the of the country to to find somebody new and different, very very different from what we'd seen. And at first, he seemed to you know he he built a significant following. I think I think he self-immolated to, to, a, to a considerable degree since then. Does the diversity and pluralism of today make finding those leaders more difficult? That's a really good, really good question. <clears throat> Some of the best literature that's coming out now. Jeff, through um, you know, there, there are a lot of scholars who are looking at what does it take to run a democracy? How do you preserve a democracy? Keep it healthy, keep it vibrant and robust. <clears throat> and what are the challenges? What are the fundamental challenges to to leadership in a in the country today? And and one of the major major points that various historians and you know analysts today are making that needs more attention is that multi ethnic societies. When you have a lot of different backgrounds and there's no majority, there are a lot of minorities who are, that that they have a very hard time surviving as a democracy. It, it, that what really works for a democracy, you need a lot of diversity, but it's helpful to have one group that is sort of like the bigger group, the sort of the, the reigning group, if you would. Uh, and you know what we're seeing a lot, and I think from the right, 
is a is this whole idea of, of replacement theory, and that is the, the people on the right, <clears throat> increasingly in the, for the Trumpites, uh, believe that the, the 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 great challenge of our time is they're going to be displaced by by Mexicans coming across the border, by people coming up from Central America, by all these different groups that are growing up, um, and there are, increasingly a lot of whites feel like they're they're going to the bottom of the barrel. And they're not going to they're going to be forced off the table. I, I don't believe that. I think the answer to this is not to have, give seats to new people and chase some old, old people off. It is to enlarge the table. Let more people be at the table, have more opportunity. I, we're not going to make it if, if you know, 10 percent growth in women uh, in the workforce means a 10 percent loss among men. Uh, and similarly, 10% growth in, in Latinos coming in, or even Asians coming in, is going to mean you're chased off the table. That that is uh, the recipe for an explosive future. But of course, it's hard to find, as as you said at the outset, it's hard to find the examples of democracies that have worked with that kind of pluralism. It's exactly right. You, it's very very hard to find that, and that's why. You know, we're, we haven't concluded the great American experiment. This, it, America's whole history has been one of experimentation to being out in front of others and trying to develop, you know, a, a, a societies which are not only more harmonious, but also give you a great deal of freedom and, you know, encourage uh, self-development. Talk about it from an electoral point of view and, and, and how we get people, to what extent leaders are necessary to get people reengaged. Um, I would like to believe that somewhere out there uh, we're going to have some people emerge in the next five to ten years that we don't know much about now, but will give will strike us as being, wow, will we really? I mean, you remember how excited excited we were when Barack first got elected, and I was I remember being on the streets in Washington D.C. and uh, on this inaugural inaugural day, and the excitement. That just their sense of idealism that came from that, that my God, we as a country elected a black man as president. There was a, just a tremendous sense of I'm proud to be an American because we're doing something other societies have never done before, not never done successfully. We've elected someone who's like a black guy in a white society. And so I think that those moments are going to come again. You know, if you talk to historians will tell you we've had existential threats to democracy before. Uh, we came early in our in our in our the life of our republic. You know, George Washington as commander, you know, he lost the first six out of eight battles that his that his side you know fought that his men fought. Uh, he almost lost it. We almost lost the republic then, but we rallied. We came back. We we formed a uh, you know we got a constitution. We did all those things and made ourselves very proud. We became a can-do nation. We got to the Civil War. We almost, 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 almost came one over the edge with the Civil War. It was the bloodiest war in all of our history, but we did get through it. The Great Depression, nobody thought we could make that. We changed it. We we showed the world it could be done. We were the leader out there. And the Second World War, we would, would there would have been no Allied victory had it not been for the U.S. joining the U.K. and others. Um, it was a really important you know, moment. So what the historians will tell you is. We've faced existential crisis at least four times. We've come through it all four times. We're stronger than a lot of people think. And I think that's still true. But it's also true that we know that in times of adversity, frequently in times of adversity, that's when great leaders start to emerge because we're looking for people who can have the capacity, the Churchills and the Roosevelts, 
um, and the others to come forward. At Harry Truman and to Dwight Eisenhower, all those people came forward. It, we had, if, if you go back to it, and I, this, I think I think the great hope for me is that the people who will you get, the baby boomers leave the stage, a new generation comes on, and in that new generation there are a lot of people who served in Afghanistan and Iraq. There are a lot of people who've been out there as activists that they begin to emerge as a as a group favoring change and for and providing the political cover and, and moxie to to would be leaders to make a difference. Right now, the, one of the problems that people face in Washington is if you get yourself too high up uh, off the off the parapet, you're going to get shot down. There's such a natural tendency in Washington to, to tear down anybody on the other side who looks promising. You know, just uh, just poison the environment, make it impossible for them to govern, and then we'll get them in the hell out of there, and we'll take over. That is a that's a recipe for disaster for the country if we keep doing that again and again and again. We have to change not just to the leadership, we have to change the followership. We, we, the, those of us who are followers have to have more guts to stand up for people who are good. And finally, to your point about being a short-term pessimist and relative to what you're talking about now, do things have to get worse? Do we have to reach more of a crisis point for the things that you're talking about to emerge? I don't think so. Um, I mean, that, that's, we could. We could just wait for you know things to explode so much you can pick up all the broken pieces. But the danger of that, of course, is it becomes irreversible. You know, and so what you want to do is begin introducing new blood into the system now. And it's going to take a while to build it up. But I, I'm, I'm very involved, spent a fair amount of time, with, uh, with a group called With Honor. It's a military group, and it's, it's headed up by a guy who was a Marine, um, a fellow named Brad Barcott. And the whole idea is to, to identify people who are coming up, who've been in Afghanistan, in Iraq, to identify those people who might want to get into politics, uh, to, to, to bring them along, to give them help, to give them mentorship, help them raise money, and help them get elected, you know, which to try to elect some of these veterans they're going to be like the World War II generation. That generation, to my, when I came to, to, to Washington, the World War II generation was running things. We had seven presidents from John Kennedy through George H.W. Bush, all of whom during the war, all seven, both sides of the aisle, wore a military uniform in World War II. And just one, Jimmy Carter, was not in the fight because he was still a student at the Naval Academy when the war ended. But those seven together, for all their faults, and they did have faults, major faults, but they left behind a nation that was the strongest since the days of ancient Rome, economically, militarily, politically, culturally. We were on top. Then we turned this over to the, uh, the country over to the baby boomers. Uh, and frankly, we've been unable to find the answers, as I was mentioning earlier. We need more people who remind us of the World War II generation, not just military people, but civilians who want to serve. That's why national service a program of strong national service that says encourages every person between 18 and 24 to give a year back to the country, give a year back to their community and service. There are a lot of things you can do. Uh, if you can spend two years, that is even better. But you get a year off your tuition um, if, if you serve for a year. You get your, you get your, uh, your debts, a year off your debts uh, paid off if you give a year, year back to your community. I think if we get pe- more people to serve, you're going to find – and there are already a lot of instances of this with Teach for America, with Year Up, 
There are just all sorts of organizations now which encourage young people to get into the fight, get into the arena. That's the purpose of the book that I've written, is to encourage young people to be there, to get in the arena, and help us get out of this, because we can get out of it, but the hour is getting late. David Gergen, the book is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, I thank you for being so well prepared. You ask great questions, and I'm really glad to be with you. Thank you.